This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's a joy to see you all here. It's a delight to be chairing this event with Chris Brookmeyer. My name's Lilius Fraser. I work at the Scottish Poetry Library. There's only the faintest tangential link at all to the subject of this evening. Possibly the time female, who knows? But we are allowed out from the Poetry Library every so often. Um, and there's more than a touch of fangirl, so do please forgive me if it, if it slips out. Um, ever since Jack Parlebane exploded into our lives in 1996, quite ugly one morning, found something nasty on a mantelpiece and then considered a great deal nastier developments to come, um, Chris Brookmeyer has been pretty much up there with the stellar lights of crime fiction in Scotland. I think this is number 19 book, Black Widow. This is my copy, you're not getting it. <laughs> Uh, it's shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association uh, Best Crime Novel of the Year, which is very nice news. <laughs> and if anyone's going to bloody Scotland in September, it's on the McIlvany Prize long list for the Scottish Crime Book of the Year, and I see no reason why there shouldn't be a double scoop there. <laughs> Chris, would you like to tell us a bit about this? I certainly will. I'm going to move over to my lectern. And first of all, can I just say thanks to everybody for turning out tonight? This is um, Edinburgh Book Festival. This is my 21st year in a row at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Uh, and I, it is my, it's my favourite book festival, and this is my favourite event of the year. Uh, not least because I can be quite confident that you all know what you're in for. <laughs> and you're not always sure about that in, in festivals. I mean, and also, if you're festival goers, it's a bit of a lucky dip. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I usually know that people have got really no excuse. If they've turned up here, they really ought to, to be ready for it. Um, but you can never be sure of that. Uh, this, this was brought home to me by, by an email I received, which I'm going to share with you. You're going to love this. Um, Normally it's, well, it is a complaint, but at least it's a complaint that tries to be nice to me. Um, Dear Mr. Brookmeyer, I'm an avid fan of your writing, having purchased all your books so far. Right, I want you to remember that. All your books so far. This was uh, by about book number 16, I think. Um, and I think you're one of the best authors I have read. I, and she goes on and on about how good I am, but I'm not going to share that with you. Right? <laughs> She says, I purchased Bedlam on Friday and started reading yesterday. I don't see why you're laughing. I am very disappointed. I'm reading that. I think, right, well, I was bracing myself for that. It's a science fiction novel. It's all about video games. I'm ready for, for what she's got to say. But she says, no, I'm very disappointed that you seem to feel the need to do the same as just about everyone else at the moment and use the C word in your writing. And I am not particularly po-faced about swearing. I am more disappointed that... She's not angry, she's just disappointed. <laughs> I'm more disappointed that you're doing the same as everyone else, using a so-called taboo word to juice up your writing. As we're all learning a new verb there, juice. Um, 
than about the word itself. And it's happening everywhere. Even the loveys are using it. I went to the theatre at the weekend and Sheila Hancock's first sentence used the word. However, the play itself was abysmal and not even the shock factor improved it. I do hope that you're not using the C word because you feel it will improve your writing or make it more edgy and or fashionable because it genuinely does not. Now, I have never aspired towards being edgy or fashionable. Look at me, right? But if I was going to aspire towards that, I think swearing or using the C word in particular would, uh, would not be the route I would go down. Um, but I, I am a very polite person. I do reply to most emails, uh, and I replied to this one. Dear Patricia, I am disappointed that your enjoyment of Bedlam has been diminished by the use of a word that you find particularly offensive. We all have our triggers and our sensibilities, and the C-bomb remains a word that many readers have a problem with. I do hope this won't lose me a reader, because that's money. <laughs> however, and there is a however, what confuses me about your email is that you state you have purchased and enjoyed all 15 of my books so far. I have just spent five minutes running a computer search for instances <laughs> of the offending word in all of my manuscript files. And here are the results. <laughs> now, rather than read these out in chronological order, I think we can have a bit of fun here. Now, I don't have any prizes to offer. I don't have a book to give away, but what I could do is, you know, like in theme parks, we have the fast track. Maybe we can have a, a prize of fast track to the front of the signing queue afterwards, right? <laughs> so I want, who thinks, if we, who reckons they know if we're gonna have a wee bit of sweary bingo? Or, uh, I'd like to have a, a couple of folk to see if they think uh, which of the books scores the highest here. Uh, and on, on what we'll get is a couple of folk to, uh, I'll give them, three books each, they can choose three books each and see who scores the highest on the cunt count, right? <laughs> we have any, any volunteers, somebody stick a hand up if they, they think they, they reckon they know which of my books is going to score the highest here. Lady over there in the glasses, right, now you, you go first, you get, and who, who are you up against? We have another volunteer. Lady here, also in the glasses, highly confusing in terms of description. Um, <laughs> So you can get your first choice, and um, you're allowed to, uh, to be fair, I'll, I'll let you choose the same book if somebody's beaten you to it, but I, I would imagine you'll go for different ones. Your first choice, madam. Tail-edged in blood and hard black pencil, 57. A tail, you don't need to guess how many, but, but my goodness. <laughs> well Wasn't it you I sent the email to, was it? <laughs> I've got to say, you're off to a fucking good start. It's a... um, uh, the Sacred Art of Stealing. The Sacred Art of Stealing. So this lady's going for the Sacred Art of Stealing. Okay, uh, I'll tell you where we're going at the moment. Uh, Tail Exton Blood and Hard Black Tip Pencil is the high watermark. It scores you 65. <laughs> Sacred Art of Stealing, a mere three, madam. But I'll give you, you can go next. Quite Ugly One Morning. Quite Ugly One Morning. And your second choice, madam? I'm sticking with my first choice. No, no, you're allowed to add to the, to the total here. Oof, uh, it's a cumulative total. Okay, um, pandemonium. Pandemonium, did you say? Right, that's pandemonium. That scores you 24. And your choice of Quite Ugly One Morning was 14. 
So I'll give you one more chance, but it's going to have to be. I don't one, think you can turn it around at this I stage. Uh, one fine day in the middle of the night. One fine day in the middle of the night. Would you care to go for another one? I think you've probably already nailed it. You prepared to? St you're going to stick. <laughs> Chuck one more in there just for fun. Give her a suggestion, somebody. Boiling a frog. Boiling a frog scores you 41, and you've definitely nailed it. <laughs> Lilius, can you give us the final totals? <coughs> Can I count my toes, or is the fact that I'm an open toes? I think we don't really need the totals because <laughs> lots, uh, lots. You won by some distance. Uh, I'll give you some other selected highlights here. Country of the Blind would have scored you 32. Uh, yeah, Boiling a Frog scores you 41. Uh, Pandemonium scores you 24. And um, but here's interestingly, Bedlam, the book she was writing to me about, won. <laughs> Clearly, it was a belter. <laughs> so, I finished my email tour by saying, as you can see, this word has been appearing frequently and consistently in my work since the beginning. I am not being facetious when I say that under the circumstances, I would genuinely like to know how you failed to notice <laughs> or be offended by more than 250 uses of it across the body of my previous work. Perhaps your own sensitivity to the word has been ramped up recently by its overuse in certain quarters, and thus its solitary instance in Bedlam leapt out at you. Yours, Chris Brookmeyer. <laughs> now, having said that, I'm probably not going to use it in what I'm going to read now. I'm going to read from the beginning of, of, of Black Widow. We're going to talk mainly about Black Widow. Um, because it's what the programme says, uh, and, um, and also because it's a, a book I'm particularly proud of. Uh, and rather than give you too much of a, of a preface to it, I'll, I'll just read from the second chapter, because it doesn't really need any introduction. Um, and it's called Her Day in Court, from the point of view of a formidable woman. My trial has barely begun, and no testimony heard, but already I know that in the eyes of this court, I am an abomination. As I gaze from the dock and take in all the faces gazing back, I think of the opinions they have formed, the hateful things they've written and said, and I think of how once it stung, but my skin has grown thicker over time and I have worse things to endure now than mere words. Society's judgment is always harsher upon a woman who has done grave deeds to get what she wants, a woman who's challenged their values, violated the accepted order of things. I do not expect anyone's sympathy, I do not seek forgiveness from people who have never been tested as I was. I may be guilty and I may be sentenced, but I will not be condemned. Not by those who cannot understand. Nobody here can judge me until they know the whole truth. Until then, their opinions are just impotent, angry words. And my, haven't those been in spate since this business first came to light? Just think how they were exercised by the revelation that this bitch murdered her husband. The tone was one of boiling anger, and at the heart of it all was one single rhetorical question. How dare she? How dare she? There's a thought. Nobody ever asks, how dare he, when a man kills his wife? The coverage is coloured by sombre tones, its language muted and respectful. It's like the reporting on a death from disease or calamitous mishap. It's dreadful, but it happens. Poor thing. So tragic, it seems to say. And like disease or disaster, the follow-up is about asking whether more could have been done, what signs were missed, what can we learn? 
By contrast, there's a conspicuous shortage of victim blaming when it's a husband who lies slain. Why didn't he leave her? He must have known what she might be capable of. There had to have been indications that she was dangerous. I'm not condoning it, but surely he was aware of her triggers. There's no excusing what she did, but it wouldn't have happened unless he did something to provoke her. Said nobody ever. <laughs> See, that's what chills them. They can just about handle a crime of passion, a moment of madness, but a clever, calculating woman who can plan something elaborate and deceitful is a far more galling prospect. I glance at the reporters in the gallery, poised to take their notes. I take a moment to think about what it looked like from their perspective. They saw a woman who found love just when she was beginning to think it was too late. She had given the best of herself to her career and had come to sorely doubt whether it was worth the price. But then out of nowhere, she met her Mr. Right and suddenly everything seemed possible. Suddenly she got to have it all. A whirlwind romance, two ostensibly mismatched but surprisingly complementary personalities who found each other at just the right time. It was the stuff of rom-coms and chiclet. So much good fortune came her way, and after that, so much sympathy. The rom-com turned out to be a weepy. The singleton surgeon who found love late was left heartbroken after her husband of only six months lost his life when his car left the road and plunged into a freezing river. Let me tell you, once they've doled out tragedy points, you'd really better conform to their expectations because the widow pedestal is a high one to fall from. She denied them first a happy ever after, and then a poignant end to a tale of doomed romance. She desecrated their church, and so she had to face their judgment. What else would they see? What else could they see? Only one person looked closer, and he was my undoing. I know I'm not the first woman to curse the day I heard the name Jack Parlabane, and I sincerely doubt I'll be the last. In my case, I don't simply regret what he did to me. I regret what I did to him too. I know that in the eyes of this court, I am an abomination, but I am not the monster I will be painted. I think of all the anger and hate I've gone through since my arrest. It's taken time, but I've come to realise I must make my peace with what I have done. I need to take ownership of it. I need to forgive myself, because nobody else's forgiveness matters. In the end, regardless of how my actions are judged, I know that this is about love. Thank you. And just to get you primed up, we'll be taking questions pretty soon. So there are going to be mics on either side. Start getting your question head primed. Now, there's one question that I think I'd quite like to get out the way here, which was that they all came along expecting a discussion of uh, feminism uh, due to the copy that billed you in the programme. I'm not sure that's exactly what's driving <laughs> this book. What uh, the dark side of feminism yeah. is building this. The, I'm not be sure. Bearing I'm in mind that they're all looking quite dangerous out I'm there, and there may even be some feminists. I'm in not it. sure I'm the dark side of anything, but certainly the uh, well, the, the genesis of the book, I suppose, does have a, a fairly overt feminist agenda. Um, we're, we're t 20 years on from Quite Ugly One Morning, which was a, a book largely inspired by my, my wife's experiences in the, the NHS at the time. And um, in a way, Black Widow took 20 years to write because it's about the experiences of, of women in the, the, that same NHS. And I, what happened was I had I'd seen my, my, my wife's friends and colleagues 
all these women who had, in surgery and in medicine, who had given so much of themselves to their career and then were hitting their late 30s, early 40s and, and they didn't have relationships and they, they didn't have a family and they were, they were thinking that they had traded one thing for another and, and the NHS doesn't make it easy. And one of the things that struck me as kind of subtly institutionally sexist was that it's, it's easy for the, the, the male hospital doctor to have it all. He can have the, the, the wife and children and the career and, and isn't asked to, to compromise, isn't asked to sacrifice. And then what, what happened was, was um, one of my wife's colleagues in her early 40s did suddenly meet someone uh, and um, when she thought it was too late and then within really only a matter of months they decided to get married. And then a couple of years after getting married, um, they had a baby and it just all worked out perfectly, which is no fucking use at all to me as a crime writer. <laughs> so I immediately have to ask myself, you know, what if it hadn't worked out like that? <laughs> and also I cast my mind back to when she was in, in the early stages of this fledgling relationship that um, how um, her, her friends were all very happy for her uh, when they were in conversation directly with her, but you know, behind her back there was lots of chat of, is she settling? You know, and that that is that was the sort of inspiration for this this the story in which you get these two people who who meet each other, and then to me the um, the most dangerous lies are the lies we tell ourselves, and one of the most dangerous times is when we're in a new relationship and you're you want to believe that the person is everything that you, that you've imagined. Um, and so the, the, this was, was the idea that, 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 that here are two people who do project a wee bit. And I was thinking about the fact that in, in this story, within six months of meeting, uh, the, the, these two characters get married, and then when six months after that, he's dead. And I realized that lots of, you see lots of um, weddings, that, lots of marriages that, that end very quickly um, after, after the wedding. And it's because at that point, you, it gets real. You, you know, that you, all the things that you've projected onto the person, um, and in this book, I suppose the question these, these two characters are asking is, after they get married, is has this person changed? Or is it just that they, they, you were willfully blind to who they really were all along? And in some cases, how, how dangerous they really were all along? Everything that you just told me in the pre-event discussion, I am now completely disbelieving, and I'm, I'm really quite disturbed about it. Uh, <laughs> what, what else is driving this book? Because that's... That's the the spark that starts it off. But what else is feeding the fire? There's there's more anger campaigning discussion. Well, I, I suppose um, one of the big hot button issues for it was um, social media, and in particular the the treatment of, of women on social media. That I, I was already starting to to deal with that a wee bit with um, Dead Girl Walking because it was about a, a woman who's a singer songwriter and how as soon as you're in the, the public eye, you're suddenly regarded as fair game and and I, I was been discussing a lot about a lot of events people will ask if I've had uh, you know angry emails from people or, or angry messages on social media and I generally haven't despite being fairly mouthy and I think but the, the thing that mainly protects me from that uh, is having a penis <laughs> because as soon as a woman gets on social media and says something quite forthright there's this outraged response uh, and so I created this character of, of uh, Diana Yeager, who is completely fearless, very, very vociferous, and, and sometimes unsubtle in, in her opinions. Uh, and I, I didn't want it to her to just be this kind of crusading heroine. Uh, you know, it's revealed that she's actually quite petty and score-settling in what she's up to. But I, I, 
it was something I've been very conscious of. I mean, anyone who's paid any attention to the kind of subculture of computer games over the last few years would have seen the, the an absolute trash fire that was Gamergate, which was really uh, um, all about telling women to shut up and get off social media and telling women to get off of video games. And um, it was, we all, when we're on social media, we have these wee, we, we can easily convince ourselves that, that all the people around us share our values. And, and, and um, then you see what happens when somebody uh, puts their head above the parapet and, and this dogpile effect that goes on. Um, so that was one of the things that drove my, my anger in the book. But I didn't want it to be very black and white. I mean, she, the, the, the question the book poses is, is, is she a sociopath? Um, and this again, without wanting to drop my wife in it, um, <laughs> she, it, was, it was my wife who told me that, that uh, anaesthetists will sometimes refer to surgeons as clever psychopaths <laughs> and say that they do love to cut. Uh, they're really disappointed if uh, some treatment uh, ha has progressed and as a result they don't have to cut. Um, but also it takes a certain... Uh, mentality uh, to be able to cut another human being open. What, there's, there's a fantastic um, book uh, 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 called On Killing that talks about that apparently we, we have this aversion to stabbing people, obviously not in Glasgow but you know um, <laughs> that, that a lot of people aren't cut out for surgery because they, they really can't physically cut someone else open um, and the Romans in fact were so successful uh, militarily because they trained their soldiers to thrust straight into somebody and they used to taunt enemies by doing that, waving their swords at them because they knew their enemies would be swinging their swords thinking they would hack and slash uh, because they, they had this aversion, this, this revulsion about the idea of, of penetrating someone with a, with a blade. And there is a lot of studies about the fact that to, the question is, do surgeons overcome this or is there something already in there? And that was something I wanted to play with because on, on one level, Diana seems very empathetic. Um, but the question is, is she empathetic or is she really clever at feigning that empathy in order to, to keep people fooled? It's not just, I'm priming for the question, so start going. It's not just Diana, though, is it? Jack's had quite a rough time. You've, he's no longer Teflon-coated. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm actually in the, in the I've finished the, the third of, of three Parliament books in a row. And... Um, when I wrote Dead Girl Walking, uh, when I brought him back after all that time, I really enjoyed writing about him as a human being, because in the past he was a bit more of a cartoon character, and, and I wanted to to render him more emotionally vulnerable. And, and I mean, I treated him really badly in lots of books, but it was badly in terms of being thrown into horrendous situations. Um, I wanted to look at the, the emotional impact of, of being a journalist in a, a time when journalism is particularly reviled, and also this... Black Widow is a book about a marriage imploding in the most spectacular circumstances. And it starts, or, or his involvement in it, starts just after he's got his divorce papers. Um, so I wanted to look at what that is in him that he's, he's had to, he realises the ways in which he's, down the years, compromised um, all the time. Uh, and I came to the conclusion after a while that if his wife kept asking him to change, did she actually like who he was in the first place? Um, and so I... I I felt that was a, a, it gave him an interesting perspective on the whole thing because he, he is quite fragile and, and, and feeling quite vulnerable when he's dealing with all of this. 
Right, now that you're feeling suitably comfortable in the depths of psychosis and dark depression, uh, marital breakup, I think it would be a good time to have some public questions. Uh, right, hand up, hand up in blue, and maybe we can take a second one. Um, hand up, glasses. There's an awful lot of glasses wearing going on this evening. Right, gentleman in, in blue, where are you? Hi, Chris. Uh, loving all the books. They're really um, gripping and keep you involved. Um, is there any um, opportunity for him to make it to the TV? Uh, well, not so far, it would appear. But um, <laughs> I, there's, there's been... Well, the, the adaptation of Where the Bodies Are Buried got a certain distance down the line and, and then um, didn't get the green light. But... Uh, I, I, with, there seems to be a renewed interest. Uh, certainly, there's a, a buzz around Black Widow, which I'm hoping will rekindle interest in Parla Bain as a character. I've actually got an email this morning um, from Peter Howitt, who uh, directed, uh, wrote and directed, um, God, the names now popped inconveniently out of my head, the John Hanna and Gwyneth Paltrow movie Sliding Doors. Uh, and he is writing a, a, a sort of crime series for, I think ITV had Avalon, um, and Avalon wanted to develop some other titles, and the one he wants to develop with them is A Snowball in Hell, uh, mainly because it seems to be coming true. <laughs> uh, and so he thought it would be, be fairly pertinent to, to the here and now. I mean, I, I actually, I mean, a lot of people point out that in A Snowball in Hell there is this, what I created is a ludicrously exaggerated idea for where ultimately TV talent shows might lead bedroom pop stars, which is people miming along. Uh, well, apparently we now already have that. Um, but when we've got a reality TV star trying to be president of the United States, you know, that um, it does seem like the time for snowball and hell may be upon us. I was going to ask you if, you know, satire goes out of date, if there was anything that, uh, sadly, it doesn't look like it's, it's going out of date anytime soon. Just time for, time for another question, because I think there's a bit of a treat coming up. So. Uh, uh, one of my favourite ever novels by any writer is One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night. I think it's absolutely superb. Thank you. I hope I'm not misquoting you when I say I believe that you said something along the lines of that it was just the kind of novel you needed to write as you were going into your 30s. Uh, given that it's now quite a significant time since that's been written and you're perhaps moving on to other parts of your life, is there any chance of a sequel? <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice um, do you know what, that, that is one of those quotes, I think it's on Wikipedia, and I have no idea, it, it was a misquote, but is that Wikipedia effect where the misquote is the one that stays with you forever? I think I, I said something about, that. I, I wrote it because I was approaching 30 and, and I'd, been, I'd been out with friends I'd been to school with, and, and it made me think about how we'd moved on. And, and um, No, there's not really much chance of a sequel because the... the, the the fun for, for, um, for me for that book was about the uniqueness of the circumstances. Uh, and so it, it, I've occasionally thought it would be nice to... I've had Matt Black be mentioned in, in, in a couple of books, but uh, I'm afraid it's not one of the ones that's on the list for me to, to revisit. Although I'm sticking a few cameos from characters into subsequent novels. There's a couple of cameos in, um, in the forthcoming book, Want You Gone, which was what I was going to come on to talking about. Which is just your perfect key. Yeah, um, I'm going to actually give, give you a wee reading from, from Want You Gone. This is it's another Parlabane book, you'll be all happy to know. Uh, but it's, it's um, taking it forward from, from the fact that he, his marriage is broken up and he's feeling a bit raw. Uh, this is a book about the fact that he's 
when he looks back and thinks by this stage in his life, he thought he would be a father. Um, and he's kind of not had a lot of responsibility. And, and um, he also has had dealings um, in, in some of the previous books with a hacker called Buzzkill. Uh, and has been very wary of how dangerous Buzzkill is and thinking I do not want to get into debt to this guy um, because uh, of, of just how what the, what the consequences might be. But he, so Buzzkill's really useful, so he keeps, you know, as he puts it, extending his line of credit at the bank of Buzzkill. But he knows that one day there's going to be a terrible Faustian price to pay, and that's what this book is about. Um, but it's also a book about a. Uh, on the, the contrast of that is a, a, about someone who's had far too much responsibility. A, a, a um, young girl whose adoptive father has died and uh, died a few few years before, and um, she never knew her, her, her birth father. And um, her she's spent mu much of her life with too much responsibility, looking after her, her, her younger sister who's got Down syndrome. And just when she's about to sort of set her exams and hopefully go to university, her mother has her mother goes to to prison, uh, and so she's kind of stuck. And and if that's not bad enough, she then ends up being blackmailed by someone online because um, this is w the big vulnerability in current society. We 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 tell everybody far too much online. Um, so I hesitate to say that it's a novel about hacking because it really isn't. Because as soon as you say that, people think you're talking about computers, and it's not really about computers. It's all about um, how we, how, who we trust and how we trust them. Um, and see if any of this seems familiar. Good morning, HR, Don Corrigan speaking. His tone is breezy, someone whose day hasn't gone wrong yet. Oh, hi, Don, comes the reply, matching his friendliness. This is Morgan Bell over at Corporate Security in Holborn. Oh, how can I help? Don sounds suddenly guarded, but trying to disguise it, like talking to a cop. He's sure he's got nothing to answer for, but slightly edgy all the same. It's nothing heavy, don't worry. How are things over in Canary Wharf? I haven't been in the building for a while. They ever fix that big digital thermometer over the lobby? No, it's still 28 degrees every day, including January. <laughs> He's relaxed again, friendly. He sounds like he wants to help. Maybe not help get the ball rolling on a massively high-profile hack of his employer, the RSGN Bank, but cooperative even so. Look, apologies if this isn't your remit, but I'm chasing up a list Human Resources was supposed to have sent us more than a week ago. I'm organising a security awareness seminar for new employees. They were meant to send me the names of anyone who started in the last three months. At Holborn as well, or just Canary Wharf? Just Canary Wharf. I already got the list from our end, but only because I was able to go down to HR in person. I'm not having a lot of luck, and I'm right up against a deadline now. Do you know who was compiling it for you? I've been back and forth between so many people that I've forgotten the name. Can you do a quick search? For all I know, it might turn out there's nobody eligible, and that's why I never got a list. Okay, give me a second to get into this right system. There's a clack-clack of keys, a pause, an impatient sigh. Sorry, Don says, but it's a good sorry. Computer's a little slow this morning. He's under control. He's going to deliver. Ah, here we go. There's actually quite a few. 14 results. I'd better get busy then. Can you email me their names and contact details? You'd really be digging me out of a hole. Sure thing. I can send you this list right away. Good morning, customer communications. Yeah, good morning. I'm looking for Sonia Donovan. Yeah, that's me. How can I help? This is Morgan Bell at Corporate Security over in Holborn. Don't panic. We're not about to have you escorted from the building or anything. God, well, that's a relief. Sonia sounds on the back foot, but cheery, eager to please. She's not been in the job long, which is, after all, why she's been chosen from the list Don helpfully supplied. It was November you joined us, right? 
How are you liking it at RSGN? Settling in okay? Yes, great. Glad to hear it. I'm calling because it's coming up in our files that you haven't had a computer security audit yet. Is that right? Uh, no. I mean, yes, that's right. I haven't. I was at a briefing when I started, but yeah, that's the standard briefing. The audit is something different. Don't worry, it's only a checkup to make sure you're okay with all the protocols. It's pretty painless and very rarely results in you being escorted from the building. <laughs> Sonia chuckles, nervous but keen. Dawn's list said she was 41. She sounds mumsy, cheerful, responsible, cooperative. Firstly, were you happy with the IT security briefing you received when you first arrived at RSGN? Was it clear enough? Did you understand it all? Yes, totally. It was pretty similar to other places I've worked. <coughs> and so you're confident about your own security practices. You're never thinking, I hope this is okay. No, never. I'm not dealing with anything sensitive here anyway. Okay, but as an aside, I would warn you never to assume any information isn't sensitive. Of course, absolutely. Have you had any communication that you were worried might be suspect? Do you mean emails? I know not to open any attachments. That was all covered in the briefing. Yes, I appreciate that, but not everybody remembers the briefing so well when it comes to the day-to-day, -day, which is why we have to audit. Of course. Now, to confirm, your email is sonyadonovan at rsgn.co.uk and your login name is sonyadonovan, all one word. No, it's S. Donovan. Oh dear, and you were doing so well. What's wrong? You just told me your username, and I could be anybody. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry. It's okay, this is why we have audits. I'd say 70% of people get tripped by that one the first time. Now, more importantly, your password. Is it easily guessable? No, well, I don't know. I'm not sure now. I'd better test it for you then. We've got software that calculates how long it would take an automated program to crack it. If your password comes in at less than a certain figure, we have to insist you change it. So, what's yours? <laughs> Sonia takes a breath, then sighs, letting out a chuckle. No, you're testing me again, aren't you? <laughs> hey, you're catching on. Rule number one and rules number two through 50 are never tell anyone else your password. And we recommend you change it every three months as a further precaution. Would you like me to take you through that right now so you know how to do it? Sure, yes, that would be great. It's very straightforward. Then that's us done and we can both get off to lunch. I'm starving, actually. God, me too. Sonia listens carefully, following the instructions until she's reached the change password screen. Okay, just this once because it's your first time doing this. In case anything goes wrong, I want you to change the password to test pass, all lowercase, then press save. Test pass, got it. Okay, it's gone through. Now I need you to log out of the system, then when you log in again, go to the change password screen and put in a proper password, and make sure nobody is in sight of your monitors when you do. Understood. I'm logging back in now. No, hang about. It's saying user already logged on. It's not letting me in. It's okay, don't panic. Sometimes it takes the system a while to update itself. When do you get back from lunch? Two o'clock. Oh, no bother. It'll be sorted long before that. <laughs> And if it's not, my extension is, well, actually, I'll be out of the office this afternoon, so I'll give him my mobile. Thanks. And is that it now, the audit? Yes, all done. Thank you, Sonia. You've given me everything I needed. <laughs> and she sure has, because at this point, the hacker known as Buzzkill is already inside the system, having logged on to the RSGN bank, username S. Donovan, password TestPass, the very second Sonia logged out. And Buzzkill has a whole hour to go exploring before she comes back. How the hell did you do the research for this? <laughs> uh, 
I don't want to answer that question in, in <laughs> case it lays me open to uh, prosecution. Um, no, I've been a bit of a, a, a computer geek all my days, but um, what excited me when I, when I read about, um, I suppose after things like Anonymous and, and Lulzsec, uh, was that I read a, a lot about that. And, and what was fascinating was, was the people involved, that there's the stereotypes of, of the computer hacker and the, the, the truth was, was sometimes what you'd expect and sometimes far from it. So one of the, the, the principal players in Lulzsec that was involved in hacking even the FBI at one point uh, was Jake Davis from Shetland. And he was just this sort of reclusive, very shy um, individual who was, uh, kind of, I didn't have much of a life. You know, he, he's, he's, he was living in a sort of rough estate on Shetland surrounded by heroin addicts. And this was his kind of online life was his escape. But he was also quite a talented person at, at um, crafting the message and, and, and uh, manipulating people. And, and but, but what really fascinated me as a crime writer, and the reason this is a, a novel that I think fits in well with, with a lot of what I've written before, is it's not about computers, that ha hacking doesn't work by so much by code and, and, and by the, the, the technical side of it, but by what you just heard, but what they call social engineering, by people who are very good at getting you to tell them information, the, in, the value of which you don't appreciate at the time. Um, so it, it's, it's very much about that, it's about contracts, um, because whether it's the sacred art of stealing, snowball and hell, so many of the books I've written, uh, I, I suppose, uh, attack the unsinkable rubber ducks, they're all about clever psychological contracts, the way, that, the way we get people to, to trust us, the way we deceive people. So in one level it's about that, but on, on another level it's, it's, it's all about who you trust and why you trust them. There's a lot of, we'll, we'll start getting the, the mics lined up again, so there's a lot of really charming, lovely people who can make you do anything in this book. <laughs> there's also some really sad, lonely, isolated people, and it strikes me that a lot of the tech is, is a sort of MacGuffin here, isn't it? There's, this is yeah, it's, it's probably, it's, it's, it's a, a far more emotional book that, than um, um, anything that refers to hacking might suggest. Uh, I, I, I'm quite proud of the fact that some people who've read it did cry. <laughs> but um, no, it, it's, it's, it's about family, it's about relationships. Um, in, in the case of, of um, the, there's a, a character in it who, who was saying that she has left looking after her, her sister. And, and it's about being tied by responsibility. And, and she loves her sister, but you know, she can't let her looking after her sister define her life. Um, and it, it's a, about her relationship with her, her mother as well. And, and, um, and, and someone who's not, she's, she's seldom had a, or she, she's lost a, a father figure, um, and in a way she, she, she kind of finds one in Parlobane, um, but on, very reluctantly, <laughs> I would have to add. There's, right, start to get the hands up, and do you know I'm actually looking for a female hand? This is positive discrimination in action. Can I see anybody? It's just because you, you're worried they're going to ask you if your username and log on, aren't you? <laughs> right. In, in lieu of, of a female, perhaps you'd uh, like to... Well, I, I'd like to ask <laughs> Hey Chris, uh, I know you're, you're a bit of a football fan if supporting St Mirren falls into that category. But There's always, and, some, um, always somebody has to fucking ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, as you well know, there's been many crimes in Scottish football over the years. Have you ever considered diversifying a wee bit or uh, introducing uh, football into any of your writing, or is that just a, a sort of no-go area? Um, I, I, I suppose that 
it hasn't been a, an area that I, I've seen as, as being ripe for uh, for crime fiction the way I like to write it. So I, I just generally keep the the references uh, arcane, uh, and, and for those who who spot them, um, I mean, it, I, I suppose it, it's always that fear that you're you're going to alienate readers by writing about something that they don't share your enthusiasm for, um, which is something I try and bear in mind all the time. You know, when I'm writing. Um, written Want You Gone, I was very conscious of the fact that this is a novel about, on one level it's about computer hacking, but um, and so people I realise a lot of folks, as soon as they hear that, think oh that won't be for me, which is why I've had to concentrate on, on uh, the emotional element of it, and also the fact that it's probably my most elaborate heist novel, that's really what the novel is, is about in terms of its, its plot and structure um, but there's you know, the, the, there's there's a Colossal comic crime novel to be written, I think, about um, the the Rangers saga of. Um, <laughs> I was going to say of up to 2012, but it got even more mental after that. So, but it's 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 it's, it's gone way in terms of absurdity, way beyond anything I could have concocted. So, <laughs> so also you wouldn't want to write about it. You really, really wouldn't want to write about it. <laughs> I was interviewed recently by a crime reporter from the Daily Record, and she was saying how she'd had to in, in, install all these new security features at, at the police's recommendation. She had new monitoring and all sorts of stuff. And she was someone who'd been, she'd been a crime reporter for about 25 years. She'd interviewed all kinds of gangsters um, around the world, all kind of highly dangerous people. And I said, all oh, right, and so what's this about? So it's Ranger supporters. Some, they, they didn't like some she'd written after the, um, the cup final. And she was getting death threats. <laughs> there's, um, there's a lovely poem, actually. Sorry, I'm contractually obliged to mention this. There's a lovely poem by Andrew Gregg um, about a surgeon. Think about Diana as well. And he talks about his father as his surgeon, and he's looking at his hands. It's a manual art. A lot of it's feeling your way. It's not just technical knowledge, it's emotional knowledge. And he says the hard art lies in knowing where to stop, not where to cut. But there's something, there's so much material here that, that you're, there's ripe for a good rant, because there's some, should we say, political and social circumstances that you mm. may have enjoyed mentioning <laughs> from time yeah. to time with a certain... Well, I think, to, yeah, I, I realised that when I was writing my earlier books, I would just yeah. unload uh, with, with these rants, um, which was fun at, at the time, but um, also I, th I think, you know, I'm, I'm not the writer I was when I was in my 20s. I mean, for one thing, I don't know everything anymore. That's the, the, big, the big difference when you're, you're that age, you're absolutely sure of all your convictions. And, and so it's, it's the, the great areas that become more interesting the, the older I get. Um, I, I, so with... with a, Sorry, with with um, with Black Widow, uh, I, I suppose it w it was that tension all the way through uh, of of Diana's true nature. Um, in fact, in that respect, it's a it's a novel that satisfied a couple of ambitions of mine. I had an ambition um, ever since 1987 when I read Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. I wanted to write a novel that you could read a second time and it would be like reading a new book. That there was a completely different meaning to scenes once you understood what had really been going, been going on the whole time. Um, because it, there's even jokes in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency that unless you've read it before, you won't, you realise that suddenly there was jokes written for you coming around the second time. And I always wanted to do that. And, and so Black Widow was when I, I finally did it. It's a book where I, all the way through, I, I was 
conscious that I, 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 for one thing that I wasn't cheating in any way because I thought readers will go back and say was he cheating but if you, if you were to read it again it would be it would have a, have a, a very different feel to it um, and that's kind of how I would wind up my pitch for selling it because I'm essentially saying it's two books for the price of one <laughs> There is, a, there is another um, ambition that I realised with this book, but I can't tell anybody because it's so spoiler-sensitive. Uh, this is a very, very twisty-turny book that will... Everything changes and changes again so many times that... Um, and, and there is a, some very big reveals towards the end. And so I, if anybody who has read it, they can come up to me afterwards and ask very quietly what this other ambition was. <laughs> Um, can I warn you against going to the, the final page because you can't stand the suspense and you really can't bear it any longer and you think you'll never know if I just skip to the last page and then I'll go back and read the rest of it. It doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help. It just makes you even more anxious about how that person clearly got to the place that, <coughs> that they got to. Right. Are there any more other uh, psychopaths? Uh, I'm oh, there's thank there's goodness there's like another question. I'm starting to think of people really reluctant to, oh, to reveal anything about there. themselves. And uh, one over here. It's one of the things I just um, uh, in Want You Gone I made mention of because I was talking to Mark Billingham about this, thinking everybody knew this, and Mark was like, "And all oh, right, so you don't know this?" Uh, and it was he was talking about people thinking they wouldn't be fooled by sort of scams to reveal stuff. And I said, "All right, um, so you ever heard the the, the 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 meme online about what's your porn star name?" He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your um, your mother's maiden name and your or your first your first pet's name followed by your mother's maiden name. That gives you your porn star name. And everyone says, yeah, that's funny. And everybody tells you what theirs is. And I said, yeah, Mark, that's the uh, the the two default security questions <laughs> for just about every account you've ever registered. <laughs> and my friend who used to have a job uh, trying to crack people's logons at a large company says he strongly recommends uh, not using. I hate my fucking job. Password. <laughs> it's not only career damaging, but it's really not as original as you'd think it would be for some reason. Right, there was a question over here. Uh, I'm afraid I haven't read any of your books. I was a bit trapped by the Ouch, get her out. by the title of this reading. Um, if I would be a really passionate feminist, which book would you recommend to start with? I that's a, it's a great question, and, and I, I couldn't recommend anything more than Black Widow with regards to this. That's <laughs> definitely the book to read with regard to that agenda. And I, I do hope that um, you've not been too baffled by what... Uh, I always feel a, a degree of responsibility of, of someone turning up, never mind that they've never read my book before, but if people thinking, my God, I thought this was supposed to be a literary event. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Lady here the question. I'm really sorry I can't follow that. That was a super question. Um, I, I loved your short story, uh, Bampot Central, in which uh, Jack Parlebane is battling through the festival crowds, hating them, wearing his August wardrobe yes. of, fuck off, I live here. <laughs> and as an Edinburgh resident, I, I've got a lot of sympathy with, with Jack Parlebane. <laughs> So I'm just wondering how you square his sentiments with you being here pulling the crowds in tonight. Well, I, I wrote that um, when I was living in Edinburgh, um, and I wrote it during the festival. Uh, but no, I, I suppose I, I like Andy that lived in Edinburgh, uh, and I used to be walking up to go to work at the Scotsman back then, and 
Um, I absolutely adore the festival. I love the sense of how crazy it all is. But sometimes you tap into you know, the, the wee unworthy part of yourself, especially when I was trying to think about what Parlebane's perspective would be on the whole thing. So I, I do love the festival, um, but we all do want to stab a leafleter now and again. Let's <laughs> We've got I think we're... I'm just really conscious. We were, we were discussing beforehand about the fact that an event that starts at quarter past really throws off your sense of what the time is. Which, which means that I think there's just a hint of what's coming next. Uh, well, I think, yeah, um, I was going to just mention, I've got a couple of thing, things left to say, but the, the, um, the, the book festival has a theme, I don't know if it's on any of this, that one of the themes is, is um, Imagine Better. Uh, and it, it uh, chimed in with what I'm working on um, next, because obviously I've got Want You Gone coming out early next year, but I'm working on a science fiction novel um, for after that, which is a, a science fiction crime novel. I'm kind of trying to create my own subgenre of space noir. <laughs> and you can't get more noir than space because it's, <laughs> it's black. And in fact, the novel, the novel is called Places in the Darkness. And um, so it, it, it's, um, and it is, it ties into the idea of imagine better because it's about imagining a better future of, of um, mankind um, trying to build a, a, its first interstellar um, vehicle uh, and thinking of all the, the ways in which we will put the best of mankind out there. And of course, uh, it still needs built and your sort of building site is not going to show the best of mankind. Uh, and, and that's where it all takes place. And so yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm working on next. But um, I was going to just uh, leave you tonight. It's been 20 years since Quite Ugly One Morning was published. It's the 20th anniversary. It came out in, in the summer of 1996. And amazingly, I have never read from it at the Edinburgh Book Festival. I've been at the Edinburgh Book Festival 21 years. So I thought just to wrap things up tonight, I would f read from the first chapter of Quite Ugly One Morning. <laughs> This will be an abridged version, but I won't be abridging the thing that might make everybody sick. <laughs> Jesus fuck. <laughs> McGregor looked grimly down at his shoes and the ends of his trousers. The postman's voluminous spew had covered the wooden floor of the doorway from wall to wall and extended too far down the hall for him to clear it with a jump. His two-footed splash had streaked his docks, his ankles and the yellowing skirting board. Another six inches and he'd have made it, but he hadn't been able to get a run at it because of the piss, which had flooded the floor on the close side of the doorway, diked off from the tide of gastric refugees by a draft excluder. The postman had noticed that the door was ajar and had knocked it, then pushed it further open, leaning in to see whether the occupant was all right. Upon seeing what was within, he had simultaneously thrown up and wet himself. The upper and lower halves of his body depositing their damning comments on the situation either side of the aperture. MacGregor ventured down the rest of the short hall to the doorless doorway at the end, which gave on to the living room. The room was at 90 degrees to the hall, a long open area that ran the depth of the building, a partition wall having long since been consigned to the skip. Consequently, there were windows at either end. One of them was close curtained, but through a gap, 
McGregor could spy the crisp, cloudless blue sky and the lightly snow-dusted grass in the square below. Through the other, he could see the hazy, white-topped hills of Fife in the distance, the austere, dark blue calm of the Forth, and the snow-specked slate rooftops of Leith. In between, there was a corpse in blood-drenched pyjama trousers, with most of its nose bitten off, two severed fingers stuffed up what remained of its nostrils, the rest of its face a swollen mass of bruising, and a wide gash around half the circumference of its neck. It was lying on the missing door, which sat at 30 degrees to the horizontal, propped up by the twisted metal frame of what had recently been a cheesy smoked glass coffee table. The blood had run off the door and collected on the polished wood below, and might have lapped its way gently down to meet the postman's spew if much of it had not drained through a gap in the floorboards from where it ran along an electrical flex into the main door flat underneath, dripping off the end of the living room light fitting. <laughs> the police would find the unconscious Mrs Angus a few hours later amidst the damp fragments of a broken tea set, and once revived, she would swear never to let her clairvoyant sister-in-law bring the Ouija board round again. <laughs> before phoning a Catholic priest to come out and exorcise the place. And so what if she was C of S? When it came to this sort of thing, nothing less than a Tim would do. <laughs> Around the room's grotesque star attraction was a sporting cast of debris. Much of the floor was carpeted in scattered clothes, books and copies of the blue-covered British medical journal. There were huge dark stains on the walls and floor around the kitchen door, shards of broken green glass and jagged bottlenecks lying amidst the wine-soaked clothes and magazines. And there was a hat stand sticking out of the television screen, like a moderately impressive 3D effect. <laughs> McGregor looked on blankly and shook his head. So are we treating the death as suspicious, sir? <laughs> Chimed Skinner cheerily from behind. The four cops stood staring at the corpse, then at each other, then back at the corpse, and eventually out the windows. Between them, they were never, ever lost for words, but this one had run them pretty close. It's, eh, uh, started Callahan strainedly, pulling at his chin. McGregor slowly put a finger to his lips, and Callahan nodded. The first one to say anything stupid gets full charge of this investigation, understood? <laughs> yes, sir, said Callahan. <coughs> Gow looked too ill to say much anyway. DL just bit her lip and nodded. McGregor looked again at the mutilated pyjama man. This, he said, indicating the room in general, is what we experienced officers refer to officially as a fucking stoter. <laughs> Observe and take notes and consider yourselves highly privileged to be part of it. Callahan lost his footing slightly as he tried not to step on any of the items scattered around the floor and put his hand out to steady himself, grabbing a radiator behind an upturned armchair. Then his hand slid along it, causing him to fall backwards over the chair and rattle his head off the underside of a windowsill. Fuck's sake, look at this, he mourned. There was dried and drying sick all over the hot radiator and down the wall behind it, which went some way towards explaining the overpowering stench that filled the room. But as Pajama Man was only a few hours cold, his decay couldn't be responsible for the other eye-watering odour that permeated the atmosphere. McGregor gripped the mantelpiece and was leaning over to offer Callahan a hand up over the upturned chair when he saw it, just edging the outskirts of his peripheral vision. He turned his head very slowly until he found himself three inches away from it at eye level and hoped his discovery was demonstrative enough to prevent anyone from remarking on it. 
too late. Hey, they're a big cake on the mantelpiece, sir. <laughs> Announced Skinner joyfully, having wandered up to the doorway. The turd was enormous. An unhealthy, evil black colour, like a huge rum truffle with too much cocoa powder in the mixture. It sat proudly in the middle of the mantelpiece, like a favourite ornament, an appropriate monarch of what it surveyed. Now that they had seen it, it seemed incredible that they could all have missed it at first. <coughs> but in mitigation, there were a few distractions about the place. Jesus, it's some size a loaf right enough, remarked Callahan in tones that DL found just the wrong side of admiring. Aye, it must have been a wrens for the proud father to leave it behind, she said acidly. I suppose we'll need a sample, Callahan observed. As a lab up at the RVI that can tell all sorts of stuff from just a wee lump of shite. Maybe we should send Skinner there then, muttered DL. See what they can tell from him. I heard that. No, seriously, Callahan went on. We, they could even tell you what he had to eat. We can tell what he had to eat for your sleeve, Skinner observed. But we don't know which one's sick this is, Callahan retorted. Well, we don't know which one's keek it is either. <coughs> well, I'd hardly imagine the deed bloke was in the habit of shiting on his own mantelpiece. That's enough, said McGregor, holding a hand up. We'll need to get it examined. And the sick. Bag's no bit breaking this one to forensics, said DL. It'll be my pleasure, said the inspector, delighted at the thought of seeing someone else's day ruined as well. Forensics can lift the sample then, said Callahan. No, no, said McGregor, smiling grimly to himself. I think a specimen as magnificent as this one should be preserved intact. Skinner, he barked, turning round. This jobby is state evidence and is officially under the jurisdiction of Lodian and Borders Police. Remove it, bag it and tag it. Thank you. And to the lady up there, can I just say, you probably don't want to start with that one. <laughs> Admit it, you missed it. <laughs> You'll have had your tea then. Right, we're going to go over to a signing tent very close by, out here left, round the corner. Uh, please let us get there in good time so that he can be sitting in front of the largest pile of books you've ever seen. Uh, thank you very much to the venue team who get us comfortable and well mic'd up throughout. Thank you very much to a fantastic audience uh, with a high tolerance of uh, sweary words. <laughs> um, I did keep counting, it's not 57. Um, and thank you above all to Chris Brookmeyer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.